This morning, our scripture reading comes from John 10, verses 7 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, congregation. It's a privilege again to be here, and we are privileged at Mercy to have your pastor, Pastor Greg, preaching there for the first time this Sunday. And may the Lord bless him as he leads the worship there. Well, this Sunday I'm going to preach on Psalm 23, a very well-known song I know, and one that's probably in your memory bank, and I hope it is. Uh, and the reason I share this message is in part because a few weeks ago, as you know, we lost a loved one. He was not a member of our church, but he was very, very close to our church. His name was David Hack. Some of you know the story. A 24-year-old man married to Taylor Bartels for only two and a half years and was snatched from this life. And together we grieved at mercy. I was doing a series on two Thessalonians, and I thought, put the pause button on that series and said, let's, let's just preach a message on Psalm 23. Um, both sides of the family were there. A lot of friends and co-workers were listening in. And so I thought, I'll share that message again with you this morning. Some of you may have heard it. I don't know. I will remove the references to, from David, of David Hack from the sermon. But I also know that there's a weight here in this congregation, a weight of grief. We think of Sister Helga here with us this morning who had to bury her husband just a few weeks ago. There are others who are carrying this weight of grief, and I know you are here with us this morning. Brothers who have passed away, loved ones who have been taken from us, somewhat of an early age even. There are others who are walking, as the psalm says, through the valley of the shadow of death or the dark valley, and that might be a valley of loss, but it also might be a valley of anxiety, a valley of depression, of loneliness, of stress. And I want to encourage you that the psalm is also written for you this morning. There may be some of you who 
are struggling with other burdens and stresses that you feel a certain weight and a certain burden on your heart, that you just want to know that the Lord is caring for you and, in fact, carrying you through this difficult time. But I know in the Church of Jesus Christ that there are those who just feel um, that this time in their season or this season in their life, they're, they're just full of joy and full of encouragement, and they don't feel the, the present stresses of this, of this life, and this, word, this psalm is also for you to encourage you in that joy and in that sense of levity that you might be experiencing right now because the Lord is blessing you in a particularly beautiful way. But my prayer is that together, as we open this psalm this morning, that we will be able to press out of these words by the Holy Spirit the nectar, the beautiful nectar of God's mercy for each one of us. And I hope you experience that this morning. So let us open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 23, um, the well-known song in the book of Psalms, a psalm of David. There we read, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the, through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. So I've chosen as our theme this morning, our shepherd leads us home, and there's four truths, four, I think, relatively simple truths that we can distill from this beautiful psalm this morning. Here are the fourth truths. He's personal, our shepherd. He's committed. He's so committed to us. He's present. He's ever-present with us, and he's eternal, and subsequently, he's preparing an eternal home for us. Let's begin there. He is personal. So the title of the psalm suggests that we have a psalm of David. Now David graces the pages of Scripture in the book of Samuel, as some, as some of you might know, and he graces the, book, the pages of Scripture as a shepherd. We learn about King David, or David, before he becomes a king, as a shepherd of his father's sheep just outside of Bethlehem. But we also learn as we read through Samuel that he was, in fact, plucked, you could say, from the, the fields outside of Bethlehem and brought to Jerusalem and to become the king of Israel. He became the king in, in, in what we know today as, as the golden age of Israel. He was the king, you could say, that all other kings compared themselves to. He was the king after God's own heart. But one thing that David learned as he was leading his sheep was that he was everything to his sheep. He had to protect them in every way. In, in some sense, he could say he even had a kind of a personal relationship with his sheep. They knew his voice, and they listened to him. But he realized that behind all of that, there is a God, in fact, that is a shepherd to him, and, and he knows him personally. And more than that, our shepherd God is everything to us. 
And as he compared these two realities, the, the reality of him caring for the sheep of his father David and then realizing that God was his shepherd that cared for him, he says these words, the Lord is a shepherd. Does he say that? Does he say, children, the Lord is a shepherd? No, he doesn't. He says the Lord is, what does he say? Help me out here. I forgot to read it, kids. The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> Some people have said one of the most precious words in, the, in this psalm is that little word, my. My shepherd. He might be a shepherd to a million others or 10 million others or 100 million others. That might be true. And he is. He's a shepherd to so many sheep across the face of the earth. That's very true. But David says, but he's also my shepherd. And even, David's saying, even if he isn't a shepherd to anyone else in this world, I know for certain that this Lord is my shepherd. I believe that David wrote this psalm later in life, actually. And the reason I believe that is because he says in, the, in, in verse 5 that the Lord has prepared a table be, uh, before him in the presence of his enemies. And as a 17 or 18-year-old boy, I don't think he had a lot of enemies. Most 17-year-olds don't, I hope. <laughs> but David, by the end of his life, had a number of enemies, even in his own family. So what we have here is David reflecting on the Lord as his shepherd, I think later in his life, and realizing that the Lord is his shepherd even though he's a broken man. That's good news for us as Church of Jesus Christ. David realized he's a sinner. He had committed adultery. He had murdered Uriah the Hittite. He had been, in some ways, an absentee father. And the home was dysfunctional at some level. He had buried his sons, a number of them. And yet he says, after all of that truth, all of that happening in his life, he says, but still, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord Almighty, Yahweh, the great God of Israel, is my shepherd. And you might be new to the Christian faith here this morning. You might be skeptical. You might be kind of trying to test the truth claims of Scripture, and you're like, well, how did David know this? Where does this faith come from? How did David say these words, and how did they proceed from his lips? The Lord is my shepherd. Well, I'm going to help you with that this morning. I want to help you understand the faith of King David, just briefly. Because were you to ask King David, how can you say these beautiful words, King David, that the Lord is your shepherd? He would begin here, he would say, well, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is my, my creator. But not only did he create me, he created the cosmos that I get to enjoy, the world I get to experience. And he's the provider for all things that I, I get to have. The Lord is my shepherd. But he would continue and say, you need to understand that when God created this universe, when he created me, he created me and all others like me in his image. In the image of God, he created us. But he created us in his image in order to, so that we can have a personal, listen, a personal relationship with him. Unlike all the other beasts of the field and all the animals in the air, wherever it is, the birds in the air, we have a personal relationship with God because he bound us together and made us 
image bearers of him. And the ingredient, the ingredient that binds us together with Almighty God is love. God loves us. He loved Adam and Eve. But because God became vulnerable, you could say in so many ways, he, he wanted to, to test the veracity of the love of Adam and Eve. And David would continue, and he said he put a tree in the garden of paradise, the paradise of God. And he said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. It didn't take long for Adam and Eve to find another lover and choose against God's love. Plunging this whole world into darkness, plunging this whole world into despair, into sin. And the penalty of sin has passed to every other creature, living creature on this earth, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But David would continue, but our God is a good shepherd. Though even Adam and Eve rejected him, God came and he said, I'm going to promise a redeemer to you who will crush Satan's head, the serpent who lied to you. He will crush his head, even, though, even as he bruises your heel. And, and, and that redeemer will ultimately be a good shepherd who will save you. That's, that's the, the storyline in scripture. And, and as David read the scriptures, if you asked him, he would realize that God came and bound himself in a covenant with, with his people, with the people of Israel, and said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my sheep. And I'm going to govern you and protect you and guide you throughout the ages. And that's exactly what he did. So thousands of years later, we meet King David, and King David says, God has been a good shepherd. For all these centuries, God has been a good shepherd. But more than that, David would say, I realized something. That this good shepherd of Israel, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wants a personal relationship with me. He's my shepherd. I hope so much today that you can say that yourself, that you're one of his sheep, that he is your shepherd. Because if you couldn't say it with King David, I hope you can say it with the Apostle Paul or you can say it with a New Testament believer. Because the beautiful thing about the storyline is that this good shepherd, Yahweh, becomes incarnate. And he says of himself, this is now Jesus in, in, in John chapter, chapter 10, verse 14, he says uh, these words, he says, um, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And then we read later on that this shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. David was one of those sheep that the good shepherd laid his life down for. And I tell you this morning, you're one of his sheep that he's laid his life down for. So that, so that you can say this morning with me, as easily as King David, the Lord is my shepherd, and I therefore will lack nothing. He's personal. But not only is he personal, he's also committed. The Lord is my shepherd, but he's a committed shepherd. And that's our second point. He's fully committed. And you know, arguably... Shepherding sheep, uh, they say, is not for the faint of heart unless they are sleeping. It's kind of like children, I've realized. Shepherding children is not for the faint of heart unless they are sleeping. And when they're sleeping, they're like, whoo, provided they stay sleeping for a few hours. That's, that's nice. But sheep are, 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 you know, are so vulnerable. 
Uh, you know, sheep um, are, are ignorant to their surroundings. They don't know how dangerous things are out there, often like our children. They, they lack perspective, and therefore when they lack perspective, they can kind of walk off cliffs. They're easily scared, and they can't clean themselves, and they're hopelessly vulnerable. It's kind of an apt description for most of our lives. And therefore, David realizes, and therefore we must realize, that for us to exist in this relationship with Almighty God, God, our shepherd, has to be fully committed to our care. Fully committed. Not only does he have to be fully committed to our care, he has to take the initiative. He has to lead us. We need him. We're hopeless, and we're helpless. So we read, he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. He does all of this because we need him to. What's interesting, just quickly on, he makes me lie down in green pastures, you know. For a sheep to lie down in, in a green pasture, the shepherd has to remove every form of threat, any threat, sorry, to his or her safety. Every threat. Or there's no sleeping. You understand. The shepherd even has to help manage the flies and the fleas. The shepherd has to stave off hunger in order that the sheep can lie down in green pastures. He has to be fully committed to that care for the sheep for that to happen. But, but David is saying, but, but you have to understand that this is a metaphor. What God is saying, what David is saying is that God is this shepherd who is fully committed to our care. But ultimately then, it's not just our care for our physical needs, it's also our spiritual needs. In fact, the spiritual care actually feeds us into the physical life that we live. By our spiritual care, we're able to live the life in the physical world. I don't think you could find a more diligent, more caring, more kind, more understanding, more tireless shepherd known to humanity than the Lord God Almighty. And David says, he not only cares for me physically, he cares for my soul. Maybe what it means to lie down in green pastures is to be refreshed and nourished in our souls by his holy word. Maybe it, is, it means to be put into community with other Christians and spurred on in the truth by sharing in that word and in prayer so that we grow in our faith life. Maybe the shepherd who, who guides us and leads us beside quiet waters, these quiet waters are the healing and convicting and renewing power and presence of the Holy Spirit that, that warms and leads and nourishes our souls. Maybe when it says the Lord restores our souls, and the best word for that word restore is actually turn back, or the best phrase is turn back. That's what it means in Hebrew, to turn back our souls, to be restored, you could say, to the author of our souls. When our souls start to depart from him, we need to have them restored. We need to have them brought back to its author, which is the Lord God Almighty. And this is what Peter says. He understood that. In 1 Peter 2, verse 25, it says, For you are straying like sheep, having returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That's a gift from God. That means this, that restoration and refreshment is found when we're united by faith to the shepherd of our souls. Listen, refreshment and restoration happen when you're united 
by faith to the restorer of your soul. And his name is Jesus. And he's committed to that reality. Our Lord Jesus is so committed to the restoration of your souls that you're bound to him and are refreshed by him. He says this in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He wants us to have an abundant life. That abundant life is to have a life united to Christ. There's, there's no other life that's abundant. It's the only life that's abundant, you understand. But the question is, how does he prove? How does he guarantee this abundant life? How does he guarantee that he's all about the restoration of our souls so that we're united to him and feel the closeness and the refreshment and the restoring power, restoring power of, his, of his work? He says this in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He is so committed to the restoration of our lives, to the restoration of our souls, that he has to lay down his life for his sheep. Do you know what the meaning of commitment is? I should have Jesus in the dictionary beside the word commitment. He defines, listen, he defines commitment. You know what commitment is? It's the good shepherd not running away when the weight of what he had to do to save us made him sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. That's commitment. Do you know what commitment is? It's the good shepherd not avoiding the cost of the betrayer's kiss. Not defending his innocence in the courthouse, in the kangaroo court. Not evading the flogging that tore through his skin, touching his very bones. Not denying the burden of the cross he had to carry. Letting nails smash through his hands and his feet, breaking everything in their path to hang him on this cross. Not rebuking those who ridiculed him as he hung suspended between heaven and earth. I tell you, my loved ones, this is commitment. That's all it is for you. You know what commitment is? It's the good shepherd knowing that for him to bear our penalty... His father would have to turn his face away and pour out his holy wrath against our, of our, because of our sins on him and not turn away. And the sting, you understand, the sting of this rejection from his father because they had this relationship from eternity past to have that rejection, to have his father turn away from him. The only words that could come to his lips in that moment of dereliction, in that moment of despair was from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Making Psalm 22, you understand, the Psalm of the Cross, which builds our case for Psalm 23. We have the Psalm of the Cross in 22, and we have the Song of Restoration and Healing in 23 because of 22. And the only words that came to him were the Psalm, was Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? That's commitment. 
Commitment is this, that he didn't avoid any of the costs that he had to pay. Listen, he didn't avoid any of the costs he had to pay in order to save us, to restore our souls. It's unconditional love to the highest degree. I hope you can agree with me. Even if you're still testing out the, the veracity and the, the truth claims of Scripture, that, that this is true, that our shepherd is committed to our well-being. He's personal, he's committed, but he's also present. He's also present. Some of you know the author C.S. Lewis, the British author from the 1900s, the 20th century. He was married later in life, I think when he was around 50 or so, but he was only married for four years to a woman named Joy Davidman. And I think she died of cancer four years into their marriage. They had a loving, beautiful relationship, and it struck him hard. So he wrote a book called Grief Observed. Some of you may have read it. He has this quote in the book that goes, up, that goes like this. It says, Thus up from the garden to the gardener, from the sword to the smith, to the life-giving life and the beauty that makes beautiful. He says, thus, up from the garden to the gardener, from the sword to the smith, to the life-giving life and the beauty that makes things beautiful. That's the promotion that we're talking about when we leave this earth. And in some ways you could say, from the garden to the gardener is the first part of Psalm 23. Though I lie down in green pastures and beside quiet waters, that's a beautiful picture of a beautiful garden. But as God leads us home, he leads us from the garden to the gardener. But he also leads us from the sword to the smith. And I believe when he's speaking about the sword, he's speaking about the valley of the shadow of death. That dark valley that we read about in verse 4. You see, when we enter that valley, it seems... The sword is unsheathed. It seems when we enter that valley, the fangs of the evil one are laid bare. It seems when we enter that valley, the dark clouds of grief and depression hang very, very low. It seems when we enter that valley, the, the heart is worn out from its lament and the tear ducts struggle to produce enough tears because loss and death and sadness have become our new normal. Up from the sword to the sheath we go. And in that dark valley, I know some of you are walking. Even today. There's just a few truths I want you to understand as you are walking through this valley that we can gain from this text. I should provide some level of hope for you this morning. Here's the first truth. You are walking through the valley. There's no need, loved ones, to increase your pace as you go through the valley. It's a steady walk of faith that you need. Just simply trusting every single day 
to the hands of your Savior who is leading you through this valley one step at a time. He's going to be there walking with you. Here's a second truth from that reality, that you're walking through the darkest valley. Our shepherd wants to remind us this morning that the valley for the follower of Jesus is not our home. So don't make it your home. Yes, it's hard. And sometimes even when you're in that valley, you can't see that light at the end of the tunnel. I get that but it's not your home. And don't believe the lie for even a moment that God has ordained this as your home, this dark valley. You are passing through one step at a time because the Lord is leading you through this dark valley. He's preparing, you could say, a home for you that might be, it's trillion million miles away from that dark valley. That's what he's preparing for you from the sword to the sheep, a home is not in the valley. You're walking through. Here's another truth. That even though I walk through the darkest valley, and I like how other translations have translated this, the valley of the shadow of death. And there we need to remember that it's only a shadow. It's a dark shadow, I get that. But it's only a shadow. Maybe this will help the kids understand what a shadow is. You see, a shadow of a dog, this is what C.S. Lewis has written, or sorry, Charles Spurgeon has written, the shadow of a dog cannot bite. And all God's children say, amen, that's true. <laughs> a shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot ultimately destroy us. Therefore, he says, let us not be afraid. I will fear no evil. And the deeper truth behind that reality that we're passing through, that we're walking through, that this is only a, a valley of a shadow of death, is realized in the fact that when Christ was sent to this earth and it was God's will that he would do this, that he actually had to tread not the valley of the shadow of death, but the darkest and the deepest valley of hell for us. And for a, minute, for a moment, for a time, we don't know how it worked, but for a time he endured that dark valley of hell on our behalf. All the fangs bored, bared, bared loose and open in front of him as he bore the penalty of our judgment in hell for us. He treaded that darkest terrain of that darkest valley. He faced off against the devil. He faced off against death. He faced off against sin. And hallelujah, our Savior won. He conquered it. He conquered death. He conquered the devil. He conquered sin. He rose victorious, and now he says it's only a shadow. Yes, it's temporary, loved ones. So that one day we can say with Paul, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That truth is embedded into this verse, loved ones. And here's the final truth. We're walking through. It's only a shadow, but you are with me. It might be very, very hard at times, but when God says he's with you, he's not lying. 
He's not lying. He's providing a rod and a staff to comfort you as you go through the valley. He is present, loved ones. He is a present, he's present with you now as the conquering king. And you can go with him knowing that because he's conquered, you will also conquer. He will bring you through. So loved ones, he is he's personal, he's committed, he's present. Now let's close with this. He's eternal. Because he's a shepherd and because he's eternal, he's preparing an eternal home for you. That's the promise here. Now, you could camp out on this last verse, and some pastors do, and there's so many sermons just on verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't have time to examine verse 5. You can do that on your own. But this verse, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I hope that just overwhelms your soul with a certain peace that, that no one can steal from you. I'll make one reference to David Hack, maybe two. When David Hack died and when we lose someone in their youth, we realize afresh that the days of our lives may not amount to many. It's a good reminder that sometimes in God's providence, these days are cut short. Listen, children, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're guaranteed eternal life with Christ by faith, but you're not guaranteed tomorrow on this earth. We are here for a moment until suddenly beset by an unknown illness, by cancer, by COVID, by a tragic accident. We are snatched away. You know, we're not promised a long life here We're promised a long life there. But even in this short life that we may have to live on this earth or a longer life, depending on God's providence again, God wants to remind us of two awesome realities. And they are this, that goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Like two guardian angels And the word follow can better be translated as pursue. They will pursue me. They will not tire either. They will not wear out. They're just going to keep on following me, keep on pursuing me. You see, the goodness of God has no limit. I hope you understand that this morning. It's the goodness that supplies us our needs. It's the goodness that says in so many words, I have you and I am going to care for you until the day that I take you to be with me. I'll take care of you, carry you through the darkest days and in the brightest days in times of need and plenty. I will not abandon you. Goodness will follow you all the days of your life. You are mine. And, and, and love, love's going to pursue us until we meet the author of that love. That love, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, is the word hesed, and hesed means the unfailing love of God, the unfailing mercies of God. This is how God bound himself in the covenant relationship with us. He says, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to love you, and that love is an unfailing, unending, merciful, kind love that he has for us. That's going to pursue you, he says. 
like the hound of heaven, it won't give up. So he will not give up on us. His mercies are new every morning. And they pursue you until the day comes that you fall into the hands of the one who is the source of all that goodness and all that love. And his name is Jesus. That's what's going to happen. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is prophetic, you understand? Because David understands that that's ultimately where we belong. We are his sheep. We are his children. We belong with him in his home. He's a shepherd leading us home. Our home is not ultimately on this world because this world is so defiled and corrupted by sin and death and decay and, and destruction. Our home is with him. And so he says, he says in, in, in John um, 14, verse 3, he says these words, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that, we're, you, so that you also may be where I am. And that is his home. That's where he wants us forever. That's where he's leading us. Let me just close with this. What does this mean for you today? What does this mean for you right now, loved ones, hearing all these truths? Maybe some of you this morning do not have David's confession on your lips. Maybe some of you can't say this morning, right now, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe you're still skeptical. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning to reconsider this question. What's holding you back from him? What's holding you back from trusting him? He is trustworthy. He's fully committed to you. Trust him. He won't disappoint. But for those of you who have put your trust in him by God's grace, and I'm so thankful that most of you have here, repeat those words over often that the Lord is your shepherd, that ultimately you lack nothing. And I pray that even as we participate in this Holy Communion, that you'll experience his closeness in a very special way this morning. That his body was broken for you. He loves you. His blood was poured out for you because he wants you whole, cleansed, holy. This is happening because he wants you to be with him forever. He's personal, he's committed, he's present, and he's eternal. And all of that's represented in this nourishment that you're going to receive shortly. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. What can we say? When we say these simple words, the Lord is my shepherd, there's just so much truth and meaning behind those words. It cost you your life, Lord Jesus, for those words to have eternal weight and value in our lives. We thank you this morning 
that you are so good. We thank you this morning that you are our shepherd. We thank you this morning that through the, the trials and the burdens and the grief and the pain of this life, you are leading us home so that we, with all your people, can be in your presence forevermore. Fill our hearts this morning with hope. Fill our hearts this morning with joy. And fill our hearts this morning with eager expectation for the day that we get to meet you face to face. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.